you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Fathers, we continue to work our way through the book of Matthew, and in particular as we now begin to to look at, sincerely, the sermon of Christ that he gave. Father, we ask that you would help us to contemplate the things that he said. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us the ability to be able to grasp the depth and the meaning of the things that he was seeking to communicate to us. We pray that we would think about these things often. Father, we would examine our lives in light of the things that he is teaching here. Knowing, Lord, that as we do this, not only will we uncover difficulties in our life and sin and things that we must deal with, but, Father, also we know that this will lead to a greater depth in our relationship with you We know, Lord, that as a result of this, not only will there be an increase in our sense of gratitude to you for all that you've done, but, Father, there will be a deepening of our joy. There will be a deep happiness, Father, that we will experience that will often be untouched by any circumstances that we face. There will be a a strength that we will possess because of our being tightly related, tightly knitted with you. Father, we desire that. And so, Father, we thank you again that you've preserved these things for us. And we ask that you bless. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As we mentioned over the last couple of weeks, the the sermon here that Jesus is giving is showing how a person who is in a right relationship with God should conduct their life. it, It reveals the characteristics that we should possess as far as the behavior we engage in, as, and, uh, as well as the attitudes that we are to have and should be developing as believers. It is and it does demonstrate the standard of righteousness that God demands from us, that righteousness, again, is more than just doing right things, but that is definitely a part of it, uh, but it's also that which deals with the inner man. So the first several parts of, the, of what we call the Beatitudes, which is what we're in here, Uh, doing here in in these first six verses. These really deal with the characteristics that we are to have in our relationship to God. And then after this, we'll be dealing with the characteristics that we are to have in our relationship uh, to men. So again, we we ended with this last week, so we will pick it up there. Verse 3 is the first one, uh, which is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, remember that you could use the word happy. Uh, Happy are the poor in spirit. Obviously, well, maybe not so obviously, but it's not necessarily a... Uh, a happiness that is dependent just upon the moment and good circumstances, we are talking about a a very deep-seated happiness. Uh, So we shouldn't be afraid of the word happy, uh, even though it it sometimes can lend itself to being kind of a shallow understanding of things. 
Uh, but at the same time, we don't always use the word blessed and joy uh, to where we actually are grasping what that means. So happiness is a good substitute. What I, what I try to do for myself is I always add the word deep. It's a deep happiness just to kind of, uh, I guess, intensify what we're talking about. Uh, here with what we should be possessing as believers. And of course, if we are a poor spirit, he says that, that we have the kingdom. So again, simply, to, simply put, to be poor in spirit is the opposite here of being prideful. Uh, this means that the individual he's speaking of has a right and a proper evaluation of themselves with respect to God. Uh, there's a consciousness of spiritual bankruptcy, uh, an overwhelming sense that one is destitute of any claim to righteousness, uh, it is the confession that apart from God's uh, sheer benevolence, one is truly worthless without a penny to his credit. It is the poverty of Isaiah chapter 66, the second part of verse 2. I'll read it from the Amplified, and it reads this way. But this is the man to whom I will look and have regard, he who is humble and of a broken or wounded spirit, and who trembles at my word and reveres my commands. So that's what Jesus is speaking about. What we have here in this second part of verse 2 of chapter 66 of Isaiah, man says, who is the man I will look to? Uh, the idea there is to look to with, with favor, uh, as it also says here in the Amplified, look to with regard, and then it's explained. You're humble, you're broken, you have a wounded spirit, you tremble at the word of God, and you have a sense of reverence for the commands of God, which would then imply that uh, that reverence is seen in your desire and in the actual obedience to what God has said. And so uh, God is letting us know here that um, God is very interested in the way we live our lives, that he immediately eliminates this idea that God is distant from us. God is actively and intimately involved in our lives. He cares about what we do about the way we live our lives, the way we think, the way we react. And he is looking, I guess we could say it this way, he is looking to bless us. I, I clearly do not mean in the Benny Hinn kind of way, uh, that you know money is going to come your way. Uh, but the idea is that he, the, there's a definite sense, though, that he desires to bless us. He, he wants to make us happy. He wants us to experience this depth of joy uh, that he talks about. So again, this here is an individual who recognizes or, uh, that man has no righteousness of his own. He is utterly dependent on the righteousness of God for mercy and salvation. And of course, those are the ones who enter the Messianic kingdom. Verse 4, and all of these are very closely associated with each other. Uh, so you can take them all separately, put them all together. You can couple them however you want to do it. We're going to be looking at verse 3 and verse 4 tonight, specifically verse 4 then, along the same lines as far as what the, the attitude that God is looking for here. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When he says blessed are those who mourn, uh, the Greek word there implies an act of lamenting, wailing, and crying. Uh, one commentator said that if you put this in the vernacular, it would be blessed are those who really express their grief, for they shall be comforted. Blessed and happy are those who mourn. To mourn in this context really is speaking about developing a sensitivity to sin. That is one of the things that we desire to see take place when we gather together on Sunday morning and we do our sin of confession. That is to help to develop 
a sensitivity of sin. It, it reveals a sensitivity to sin, but it's also done to help to develop a sensitivity to sin. Uh, so it's not a so the grief he's speaking of here this mourning that's taking place. Um, it is not the grief of bereavement because maybe someone in your family has died. Uh, it is not sadness because you, you are thinking about memories that are kind of we might even call them nostalgic memories. Um, this is not a grief that comes about because of opportunities that were lost in the past. Um, it is not painful regret uh, because of things that you either did or did not do. Um, it's not the pain of regret because you now are facing punishment for some sin in your life. Um, it is not, in Paul's language, uh, a sorrow of the world. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. So let me read that to you again from the Amplified, and it reads this way. For godly grief and the pain, uh, and, and the pain God is permitted to direct produce a repentance that leads and contributes to salvation and deliverance from evil, and it never brings regret. But worldly grief, the hopeless sorrow that is characteristic of the pagan world, is deadly because it breeds and ends in death itself. So what I thought was interesting was in the Amplified, he, first he mentions godly grief, which we have in all of our translations, but then he adds this, the, the pain God is permitted to direct. So the idea there again is that this individual is in communication with God. They, they pour their heart out to God, and part of the desire that we have is for God to direct that pain in our life to produce what God seeks to produce. So it's not just experiencing pain and you're just hurting. Uh, it goes way beyond that. The idea is that this is being used by God to, to shape us into the kind of person that God wants us to be. Vernon Grounds, um, you may not know his name. He's associated with, I believe, Denver Seminary for a long time. I don't even know if he's still there anymore. But he says this. He says, It is the morning of the guilt-confessing sinner who is cognizant of his disobedience and evil, the hideousness of his rebellion against God, and the sheer malignancy of his motives. So the idea here is that those who develop this sensitivity will naturally confess their sins to God as soon as they become aware of them, and they will be comforted. So you remember if, if you were here this morning and you were listening to what Steve said just before he went into the prayer of confession, the idea is, is that you know we're not not confessing our sins during the week and waiting until Sunday to confess our sins. The idea is that we are confessing our sins really on a daily basis. That's part of that process. But it's also a, there's a uniqueness to that because we've all gathered together and are, we're doing that corporately. We all know that we are doing this and the idea is that we are now thinking about the sin in our life. Maybe the sin that you've had to confess several times during the week. Uh, maybe the sin that you're struggling with. But the idea is, is that by thinking uh, about it and confessing it again corporately together uh, as individuals, uh, that is going to have, and we want to have an effect on our heart, a, a continual softening uh, to and to the leading of the Spirit of God and to the uh, conviction that he brings our way. So again, we want, we want to have this sensitivity developed in our life. But he tells us here that we're going to be comforted. So the idea here is that God is not going to be allowing you just to linger in pain and just wallow in it. There's a sense that there's this immediate uh, relief. Now, I'm not going to interpret what that means by immediate. 
Uh, but the idea is, is that, you know, as believers, when we confess our sins, we are doing so already knowing that our sins are forgiven. We already know that our sins have been punished. So I still have a, maybe a very heavy sense of regret uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and self-loathing that I have repeatedly done these things this week. But at the same moment, I'm not, I know I'm not condemned because my sins have been taken care of. So it, it, it should not lead to, and it does not lead to, a flippantness about sin to where I'm at ease committing sin again. There is, again, that sensitivity where I mourn over that sin. But this is not self-pity either that he's getting at. This is a, a mature, I, would, I guess you would call it this, a mature mourning uh, about our sin. And so uh, what God is guaranteeing is, is that this individual who mourns over the sin, they will experience the joy and happiness of, of their sins being forgiven. They will. It, it's, it's promised to us. So we, I want to put these two things together. What we've been talking about here in verses 3 and 4, uh, the one who is poor in spirit, because the one who is poor in spirit is the one who's going to be mourning, just so you know that. So I'm going to read, you, read to you from quite a bit from a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, because what I'm about to read you, I don't think can be said, I know I can't say any better. And I just think that it's very thought-provoking uh, as we think about these aspects of, or, or these characteristics that God desires to see in our life, really what hopefully we desire to see in our lives. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, he was a man of conviction. He was a faithful pastor. He was born in, in 1600. Uh, he was educated at Emmanuel College in Cambridge, uh, he graduated with a Master of Arts degree, then he went into ministry in England. Uh, he served as a pastoral assistant, and then uh, later on he pastored a couple of the largest congregations in London uh, between 1640 and 1646, so for about six years. But he was an independent. He was an Anglican uh, who believed the church and the state should be separate, and that local congregations uh, should be autonomous. So he was basically a Baptist. Um, uh, but he was wearing a cloak. Um, so that set him at odds with the Presbyterians uh, as to how churches should be governed. Uh, and that was a real contentious issue in his day uh, in England. So it led to a lot of strife, a lot of division, um, and he took a lot of grief because of that. But many people still said about him, even though he held these views, he was really a stabilizing force who always acted in moderation in his support of this independence he believed that churches should have. And he wasn't trying to stick it in people's faces. He was convinced of it. Uh, but his, his desire was for, for, he wanted people to be on his side with this, but he wanted to see people grow as believers, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. They say on, his, uh, on the door of his study, there was a motto that was both in Latin and Greek, and I'm going to read to you the translation, <laughs> which was, variety of opinion and unity of opinion are not incompatible. That sounds to me like a sanctified Baptist. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, uh, let me read to you some things that he wrote about the poor sinner who understands the meaning of sin or what the meaning of sin is and who understands something of, a, of the dreadful evil of it. Now, keep in mind that some of these guys back in the 1600s, when they write about the poor sinner, that could be either a believer or a non-believer for them. You know, they believe that an individual could be uh, coming to an understanding of the gospel and they were a poor sinner, and they were grasping some things, and they were, they were close to being converted. But they also believed that a believer was thoroughly convinced he was a poor sinner, but saved by the grace of God. 
And so many of the, you know, the, the attributes he's talking about or characteristics would be seen in both. Uh, so don't try to differentiate between, well, is he speaking of a believer or a non-believer? It could be either one. But what he says about uh, this individual, again, who understands what the meaning of sin is and understands something of the dreadful evil of sin. So he asked this question, O poor sinner, what do you see? So in response, he puts himself in the place of the sinner, and he says this, Oh, I see the angry countenance of an infinite God against me, whose eyes are as a flaming fire looking with indignation upon me. I see a black dismal cloud of the displeasure of the Almighty hanging over me. I see a most hideous and dreadful sentence of wrath ready to fall on me. I see woe, misery, and destruction pursuing me. I see blackness of darkness and desolation even surrounding me. I both see and feel the woeful accusations of a guilty conscience within me, condemning me, continually grating upon my soul, and terrifying me with dreadful visions of eternal miseries to betide me. I see the chain of black guilt and horror on my soul that I carry with me wherever I go. I see the bottomless gulf of eternal horror and despair with the mouth of it wide open to swallow me up. It's a fairly piercing and graphic description of an enlightened sinner's understanding of the fearful and the dreadful consequences of sin. But he goes on because he contrasts that to the blessedness of what is to be had when sin is pardoned. And he says this, Now then, this sight being presented before an enlightened and awakened, and an awakened conscience, the pardon and forgiveness of sin come in whereby this dreadful cloud is dispelled. The temptest is gone. The darkness and misery vanish away and all the evil whatsoever. The soul is set free from sin and from all the dreadful consequences of it. Is not this a blessed man? Compare his former condition with his present state, looking on him as having the sense of the dreadful evil of sin upon his conscience and the heavy burden of it on his back, ready to sink under it into the gulf of misery, and now pardon of sin comes. Oh, what a blessed change is this! Oh, blessed is the man whose sin is pardoned! Now, what God had laid unto his charge, whether his own conscience, the law, the devil, or the world, it is all done away. All is discharged and gone. Blessed is the man who was thus delivered. I would say that the positive aspect of sin being forgiven is handled by Burroughs uh, really in, a, in an incredible way. And uh, he liked to, to quote from uh, the book of Daniel Chapter 9, which says, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. And he says this, Forgiveness is the fruit of glorious mercies. And he is insistent that the infinite capacity of God is the efficient cause of mercy in the forgiveness of sins. Burroughs goes on to argue that although a person's sins may be many and great, God still abounds in mercy. In God there is an infinite, vast ocean of mercy in which the sins of the elect come up to be swallowed up. So this was the illustration he used to get people to understand the vastness of God's forgiveness. He said this, Look at the mighty ocean. Whether you cast in a load of dirt or a shovel full of dirt, the vast ocean makes little difference of either one. So it is when a soul comes to God in Christ. In other words, when it comes to be pardoned and justification, 
Whether those sins are little or great, it is all one. The mercy of God makes no difference at all. It is an infinite ocean, <clears throat> ocean of mercy that swallows up all the evil in sin. This is the glorious effect of God's mercy in the pardoning of sin, that it draws a timely warning at the end. And Burroughs says this, Take heed to what I say while I am speaking of forgiveness of sin. For I shall make known so much grace that if you abuse it, it will be one of the most dreadful things you ever did, especially you that desire to hear of the pardoning mercy of God. And so I think that if you go back to what he said and you, and you read that description where he, he talks about you know, all that was, that's upon the sinner. When an individual, whether you say it eloquently like he does or another way, when you have that sense about you, whether, and whether that is a sense of dread or a sense of fear, whether it brings tears or whether it just brings fright, whatever it happens to bring, when you have that sense, then when you contrast that with this idea that God has completely forgiven you, it, it wells up inside you of the greatness of God. And, and so it seems to me to be impossible then for an individual who experiences forgiveness in that way than to glibly live their life and just go on about sin as if it's not a big deal. It would seem almost impossible for that to be done because of what the Lord produces in their life. So here's the question, though, that we need to ask. Because when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, when he talks about those who mourn, the question we have to ask is, how do I become poor in spirit? How do I get that? How do I genuinely mourn over my sin? Because I'm convinced it, you cannot produce that. You can't do it. You can't, you, you can't you know, we know that actors and actresses can make themselves cry on cue. And most people, actually, if they thought about it, they can do it. You think of something extremely sad, something extremely moving that, that's happened to you, and as a result, you know, there's an emotional response and tears come to, come to your eyes, and, and that can happen. But that's not what he's talking about here. And clearly, we've heard this before, he's not talking about where you are mourning the fact you've gotten caught. It's not that. It's not that you're poor in spirit because you're now embarrassed by your sin. It's not that. This is <clears throat> really... Something that is only between you and God. Others may see it. So I'm not saying it's necessarily hidden. But it's between you and God. God sees into your heart. He sees into your life. He sees the attitude that is there. Or perhaps the attitude that is not there. We should desire as believers. We, we should want this. I, I want to be poor in spirit. And what is sometimes frustrating is I know I'm not. There's times I am, but it's not enough. I want to be this way over all of my sin. And when I think about that, all I can think of is how far I am from the heart of God. That's all I can think about. All I can think about is that I don't mourn enough over my sin. In fact, I, what I think about at times is, is I don't mourn over any sin. You know, I'm just not really upset by it. And that's upsetting. You know, but again, it's my pride that's upset. Both a believer... And the unbeliever should be asking this question. But the believer knows the answer. But too often we neglect the answer. We, we put the answer to this question out of our mind. You know, when it comes to how do I become poor in spirit? How do I genuinely mourn over my sin? 
We, we put the answer in the back of our mind and we need to forcefully bring it back to remembrance because it can only be accomplished by Christ and it can only be accomplished by Christ alone. You cannot manufacture genuine godly grief over sin because if you do, if you try to, it will be tainted with sin itself. What I mean is if we manufacture grief over our sin, we might even be pleased with ourselves that we've done so successfully. Pride is just one of those things that's just nasty and deep, and we just need to get rid of it. Or we may be wondering that if we have grieved over our sin, we, we ask ourselves, have we grieved enough? Have I mourned enough? Which is the question coming from the heart of pride, perhaps looking for congratulations. Looking for congratulations from others or maybe from God himself. Or perhaps we're looking for some small token of affirmation that, that, uh, that we have done that we have done enough or that we have mourned enough. Still, pride enters into the scene. Poverty in spirit does not stop when you depend upon God for salvation. Mourning over sin does not stop when you find forgiveness in Christ. It is a quality that God continues to use to mold you into the image of Christ. So again, when we go back to our prayer of confession, the goal again is for us to be shaped by that so that we become more sensitive to sin. Not that we walk around all day long, again, just you know, with a sad face. Not that we walk around all day long just thinking, I'm just a bad, poor, evil sinner. It's, it's not that. Again, there's, there's a maturity to it. But, but there is a soberness to it. All right? We want to be happy as people. Maybe we want to be happy all the time as Americans. But there's a place for soberness in our lives. It, that soberness is what brings about a maturity so that we don't get carried away with happiness or only pursuing happiness. I'm not advocating that we want to have a life of sadness. But if we, but if we live our lives and we don't have a mourning over sin, if, if there isn't at times this maybe a, a sense of just, again, self-loathing, I, something is, is amiss. Because we all would say at least on a surface level, intellectually, that we all agree that we sin every day, then there should be grief every day over that. Again, you will be comforted. This is not a lingering sadness that doesn't go away. You will be comforted. You will be happy. In fact, maybe it's, it can happen quickly. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've experienced this, whenever you've had to punish your children when they were young, maybe even spank them. And so they are, they are crying genuine tears because of the pain inflicted and the disappointment that they can feel that you have towards them. And then when you hug them and reassure them that you love them, sometimes it's instant. In the midst of their tears, there's a smile. In the midst of their tears, they are actually comforted because you're not rejecting them. They know that. And, so, and we need to experience the same thing as adults. God is our Father in heaven. And, and I think we need to have that sense of his severe disappointment over our sin. But again, not so that we can be depressed, but so that we can experience once again the renewal of his great love for us. And, and I think that love and compassion mixed with that disappointment is very powerful. It's very powerful. It makes us stronger. It makes the bond that we have with him much tighter, much more secure. Remember that what God is going to do is he will continue to bring a mourning over sin into your life so that it will keep on bringing you to him for continued cleansing and change in your life. That's also what we're trying to do, remind ourselves of when we have our prayer of confession. 
is that we need to do this continually. And we do this continually until the Lord returns. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. The flip side of that is that we also don't have the true nature of Christian joy. Don't you see they are related? Because we don't have great mourning and grief over our sins, we don't experience great comfort and joy in our forgiveness. God says it is the mourner who is comforted. It is the one who mourns his sins first, who then finds great comfort and joy. We must first learn to biblically mourn the grievousness of our sins before a holy God. Again, one more thing. You've heard me say this before. You've heard others say this before when it comes to mourning. When it comes to this mourning, it is not just feeling bad about your sin. It is an inward conviction of sin that leads you to action to change it. Many people don't understand this. They think that if they simply feel bad about their sin, that is what God's want. That is what God wants. And it's not. Real repentance is not just a feeling. It involves action. Psalm 125, verses 5 and 6 reads this way. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The problem that many of us have is that we're trying to circumvent the process. We just want comfort, but we don't want to mourn first. We want the joy of salvation, but we do not want to mourn and face our sins first. We want the joy of the Christian life without mourning our individual sins first. We want to reap with joy, uh, with joy and answered prayers in the lives of our loved ones, but we do not want to sow in tears in intercessory prayer first. Remember, there is no resurrection without the death of Christ first. There is no real joy without the mourning of a godly sorrow uh, that leads to real repentance and action first. So if you are a believer and you believe or you are experiencing in your life a lack of joy and deep happiness, the problem you're having is not resolved by asking God for more joy and happiness. It may be you need to go back and look at your sin. And ask God to give you a proper understanding of the grievousness of your sin. Recognizing there's no one else to blame. You can't blame anyone. That is the, I would say that in our culture it's probably one of the most difficult things that would make uh, the world angry. Is this attitude that no matter what has happened in your life, you've got no one to blame. That never dismisses that there are people who have had horrific upbringings. That never minimizes any kind of abuse anyone has ever gone through. But in an amazing way, when you look at the silence in the Bible, that doesn't address those things. It doesn't address the lasting scars. It doesn't address the lasting effects on your character. Because in, in a sense, all of that, is just in that big bundle of sin that affects all of us in different ways and comes in, in different, through, through different avenues. But what he says is there's, there is deliverance. There is freedom. There is joy and happiness that can be had by all who come to Christ. What great hope there is. What great healing there is in that. 
We don't have to have a, you know, a special class for those who are sexually abused and a special class for those who've abused drugs and a special class for those who've been physically abused and a special class for those who've been emotionally abused. We don't have to do that. Christ truly does heal all of that. When we come to grips with our own sin first, it sounds cruel and harsh. And we can communicate it in a very cruel and harsh way, and that would be wrong of us to do that. But we can't escape the fact that when we give the gospel, that it's still about what that individual has done in their rebellion to God and their need, their need of forgiveness. And when they do that, what does he say again in the Sermon on the Mount? They will be comforted. Not about you, but I believe that very strongly. I have seen that in the lives of countless people, in, in the lives of some people who have spent thousands of dollars see, see, seeking out counselors to help them to deal with their past. And when they come to Christ and they truly experience his forgiveness and his comfort, they don't need the shrink anymore. They, have a, they literally have a new life on life. Their past no longer identifies them. Their, their past no longer has enchained them. They are free to live new in Christ. They are, they are free to experience joy and happiness and comfort and freedom. What a great thing that is. So the gospel message of Christ, again, uh, it is the message the world desperately needs. It is the only thing that can cure the ails of the world. It's the only thing that can cure you and me. It's the only thing that's going to bring to you and me joy and happiness. And that is the message that we can bring to those who do not know Christ. So never be ashamed of the gospel because you go right back to Romans 1 and what does it say uh, about the gospel? It is the power of God. That story, that message is the power of God to salvation, to all who believe. And the salvation we experience through Christ is complete in every way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful to you for the incredible cleansing and the healing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who are believers here this evening, I don't know, Lord, if anyone here is content with the joy they have. There may be those who are. But I think most of us, Father, would like a joy that runs even deeper. We, we would like for the happiness that we have to be a deeper happiness. And, and Father, you have told us here in your word, in the actual sermon preached by Christ himself, that those who are poor in spirit will be a part, have a part of the messianic kingdom and those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. Father, that, that combines hope for the future and an immediate healing immediately. And we thank you for that. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in believing and depending upon the gospel each and every day. And then, Father, again, with a renewed sense of purpose and hope and conviction, share that message with others, realizing, Lord, it is undeniably the power of God to accomplish these things that you seek to accomplish. And so we thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to think often about these things. We pray that you would burn these truths deep into our hearts and minds, that we would be changed by them. We thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.